I confess, I used to work at Blockbuster, and on a really slow morning when no customers were in the store, I gave my coworker slash boyfriend a blowjob behind one of the aisles. Ballbuster, Blockbuster. <laughs> I confess. I get excited when I hear the sound of my boyfriend clipping his fingernails. Because I know it means I'm about to get a fucking awesome fingering. Yes! I was hoping that's where that was going. Yep. I confess, I want to have a threesome with my wife and a total stranger, parentheses girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I confess, I was in the mood to ride some dick. So I suction cupped a dildo to my nightstand. And hopped on. I don't usually come from penetration alone, but Nightstand did the trick. <laughs> Welcome to Bedpost Confessions. Sex. Almost everybody does it, and almost nobody talks about it, except at Bedpost Confessions, a storytelling show based in Austin, Texas. Whether the stories are funny, informative, political, or completely personal, the anonymous confessions from the audience are the stars of every show. Welcome to the Bedpost Confessions podcast. I am Miranda Wiley, a Bedpost Confessions producer. In 2020, Bedpost Confessions celebrates its 10th year. And in honor of that, we are offering two podcast episodes a month. So make sure to subscribe to the feed so you will never miss an episode. Also, our live show dates for Austin are posted at bedpostconfessions.com. With our next show, Bedpost Confessions, The Sweet Spot, on January 22nd, 23rd, and 24th at the North Door. Get your tickets before they sell out. Now to the podcast. Spike Alepsi is a journalist, blogger, author, writing teacher, wedding and funeral officiant, rancher, venue owner, animal rescuer, dedicated meditator, domestic abuse survivor, and avid knitter. Spike's most recent book, The Tao of Bob, is about an unexpected roommate, an 87-year-old farmer, who taught her the true meaning of unconditional love. Newcomer to the bedpost stage, but not the stage itself. Spike Galepsi digs deep into a relationship dynamic in her piece, How Do I Look? One note before we hear Spike's story. All bedpost storytelling productions are made accessible to the deaf audience members by the fantastic interpreters from Soul Illumination. Though the interpreters are there to serve the deaf, they enthrall the entire crowd with their beautiful expressions of American Sign Language. If you hear a roar of laughter and don't understand why, the interpreter may have stolen the show for a minute. Here is Spike. So I want to thank the entire Bedpost Confessions uh, crew. Thanks for your persistence. Thanks for having me. Um, a little bit about this piece. I'm a, I'm a chronic over-explainer, but I just wanted to say, you know, Trigger warning. Um, But spoiler alert, I'm getting a lot better. I work with a trauma specialist all the time to heal from some of this stuff you're about to hear about. Um, Recently, the Supreme Court shit uh, has caused, for real, has caused extreme flashbacks. 
I was sitting in my room with my dogs and my guns, bawling my eyes out for days, but I'm back out of the house again, ta-da. And um, so uh, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I think we should get more than a month, but we just get a month. So please be aware if you're in a situation like the one I'm about to describe or any domestic violence Situation. I hope that you'll try to get help, and uh, you can always email me. I host a monthly dinner for um, for survivors. Uh, and just two more quick things before I actually start reading here. I ask all of you all, please vote. Please vote. <laughs> and where's Nikki? Will you help me switch teams? <laughs> Thank you. I, re- I learned a lot. So. This, is called how, this is called How Do I Look. Darth blipped across my radar one steamy summer day, a first hello fast giving way to a blur of flirty words and adolescent seduction, signal growing stronger with each incoming text. I knew he was troubled. I knew he was trouble. The friend who introduced us said as much, warned me away. But trouble is my passion. Trouble pulled me in. Darth swirled around me a tornado of doom, proclaiming he wanted to be my next big mistake. Texts led to phone calls, the conversations lasting hours, and while I waited a full six weeks before giving in, beating my typical record for hopping into bed, which is about two hours into the first date, (laughs) give in, I did. You know about the frog in the water that slowly comes to a boil, how the frog adjusts and adjusts again until he is boiling too, too late to hop out to save himself? You know about the other frog, the one that gives the scorpion a ride on his back with the scorpion promising not to sting him and then stinging him anyway, explaining with a shrug of his little scorpion shoulders, can't help it, my nature, he says to the foolish frog howling in pain. Me? I am the frog in the hot water with the scorpion on my back. This is how I do things. I fill the pot myself. I set the temperature on high. I dab oud scorpion pheromones at every pulse point. (laughs) And then I wait. Later, much later, way too late, I cry and I cry and I cry, bemoan my heart when it explodes, point my little rigor mortis frog finger at him, Scream into the blackness. You did this to me. This is all your fault. But let's be real. I hopped into that pot of my own accord. Dick is my downfall. (laughs) At first, he swings his mighty cock like a champ. Knows the words, the moves, the rhythms. I am, he says, nuzzling my ear. His silver fox, his pretty lady, someone he doesn't deserve, is terrified of ever losing. How my ears love his tongue, the way it licks, the words it speaks. Then comes sting number one. If you've read Catelyn Moran's book, How to Be a Woman, you know she makes a great argument for granny panties and big bushes. (laughs) Darth never read that book, though. While I was studying feminist power, he was apparently gorging porn, letting this shape his definition of desirable. And so the commentary begins. He doesn't mean offense or anything. He assures me. And he swears he isn't a pedophile with a fetish for the little girl look. Honestly, he says, he just needs better clit access for that magic tongue of his. And really, 
The last time he saw something like that was sneaking peeks at his mother's copy of The Joy of Sex as a kid. Can you shave that thing, he asks, or I could get you a gift certificate to the pretty kitty. Inwardly, I recoil, but I do not hop from the pot. Out comes the razor, then off I go to Victoria's Secret, my feminist mind, heart, and crotch bristling, even as I pile upon the counter the thongs, the demi-bras, the flimsy bits of nylon made by third-world garment slaves. (laughs) Occasionally, these efforts net his approval. Mostly, they go unnoticed. One day, he eyes my body, foe casually says, you've really blown up. And then, upon seeing the pain on my face, well, I guess I just ruined the weekend. His shaming commentary ruins far more than the weekend. I tell myself, do not internalize. I internalize. After more than 50 years of working my way to something like self-acceptance and a borderline genuine fuck-you attitude at how our society demands women aim for anorexic hips, I crumble, take his words to heart. My eating disorder, dormant for years, roars awake. My appetite disappears. Some days I eat just a single apple. Others, a mere pint of ice cream. Nothing more. The hunger... The sugar, these make my mind as crazy as any words coming out of his face. Forty pounds cascade from my body. Weight I lose, not so much to please him as I do thanks to the anxiety his words induce. As the pounds fall off, irony abounds. Everywhere I go, people declare my new look amazing. Unwitting, they feed the beast of my unfeeding, reinforce our culture's ridiculous definitions of women and beauty. I'm sick, I want to scream at these compliments, to point out that buried close to the surface of their words is the implication I didn't look so good before. And yet, I can't not acknowledge the sick me loves their praise at least as much as I resent it, loves meeting the very same standards I decry. Does my new tiny body please Darth? No. It merely pushes him to offer new complaints. You're too bony. You're too saggy. And when I think of sex, I don't think of you. I need someone I can't keep my hands off of. One time, he gets it down to four words. You're a boner killer. Times I cry out against this cruelty, he admonishes me. You take everything too personally. I'm just fucking with you. My other girlfriends didn't mind these kinds of jokes. You need to grow a thicker skin. I continue to put up with his abuse, which I refuse to call abuse for three reasons. The first, pathetic but true, He has convinced me that I am unlovable, unsexy, not right, not worthy, and so it is my job to stick around and prove him wrong. The second, this. Despite all of his shit, this man holds me like no man has held me before. When his mouth is shut and his arms are around me, I convince myself this pain is worth it. There is nothing I long for more than to be held. And the third, I pity him. I know his darkest secrets, his childhood abuse. 
I swear I see a light in him, small and distant, yes, but still. It is a light I am determined he see too, even as his darkness just keeps swallowing us both. I tell myself if I can make him see it, if I love him hard enough, he will redeem himself, and at long last bliss will be ours. He still drinks his whiskey, smokes his pot, gobbles his pills. Eventually, I discover his other habits, kept hidden until his daughter calls to tell me. There is the cocaine he snorts, the meth he smokes, the ruse of early seduction that I, long sober, might help him live cleaner is just that, a ruse. His addiction isn't going anywhere. But then, neither is mine. I might not drink anymore, but I am so determined to be held to make him love me. What I do in futile pursuit of these goals is destroying me. I cannot stop. I reach out of the pot. I turn the flame higher. One Halloween, while he is at work, I am busy working too. Recently, he has confessed he wants things spicier in bed, that I am too vanilla for his tastes. This nearly a year after I asked him directly to speak his desires, a request he has put off responding to until now, finally an answer, albeit one delivered, by putting me down again. Naively then, I suggest some light BDSM with him in charge, not realizing in the moment that to offer to submit is itself a form of dominance. He, exasperated, explains in a tone demonstrating he finds me pathetic that it is going to take a lot out of him to educate me. The grabby thongs and ridiculous bras still annoy me, but this October day designated for dress up and pretend might serve me. Maybe, I think, if I can get into a trick-or-treat state of mind, I can pull off this porn queen thing right for once. I put on black lace, blue wig, red lipstick. I wait for him to arrive. I feel more like a clown than a sex pot. I will myself to try harder, arrange myself in bed and wait, hoping my pose seductive. He comes home, grunts, does not rejoice at my efforts. I wonder when he will take off his pants, whip out that dick, thank me with a hundred thrusts. Instead, he broaches a new topic. His friend in San Antonio has a sex club. Maybe we can go sometime. By now, my Stockholm Syndrome, though unacknowledged, runs deep. And so, while I tell him on the one hand sex clubs are definitely not my thing, I let the conversation continue. But really, what I am thinking, lying there in my stupid lingerie and sticky makeup and suffocating wig, is that I have spent all day making him the equivalent of homemade enchiladas, and his response is to invite me to Taco Bell. I suggest a compromise, mention that some kink friends have rented my ranch for a party, and maybe we can go to that, that perhaps being amongst friends in this foreign landscape will broaden my mind. This annoys him, and he, pouting, says, just forget the whole thing, that I could never handle it anyway, the way he's sure the ladies would all come on to him, and I would just get jealous and ruin his night. Only much later will a kink friend explain to me that he refused a group group in a crowd of my friends because he wanted to put me in a room full of strangers hoping to humiliate me. 
Humiliation, I know now but did not know then, is Darth's greatest aphrodisiac. Again and again he puts me down. You're kissing wrong, you're fucking wrong, don't smile during sex, it creeps me out. And then, as I shrink some more inside and out, the kicker, your insecurities are really unattractive. One afternoon he is on top of me, with no warning, no prior discussion, and certainly no consent, he hauls off and hits me in the face. My ears ring. I say nothing. I am so confused. Is this my fault for not clearly specifying face hits are not okay? Is my non-reaction why another day he does it again, relishing my wide-eyed horror, demanding to know if I am his dirty whore, as I, terrified, jaw-smarting, semi-nod, not sure if this is some porn fantasy he's created or a meth-fueled reality in his warped mind. I am still in the pot, though. Not even the startling physical violence enough to boost me over the edge where I might hop away before it gets worse. Instead, I push away the pain, relegate it to memory's deepest recess. He finds a new way to turn up the heat. It's the end of a long weekend together and we are lying in bed talking. It has been mostly a shitty few days, him as ever showing up hours later than promised, us arguing, then eventually calming down. This aided for him by queuing up a porn, his favorite kind, the biracial gangbang, a half dozen big black dudes penetrating a skinny white blonde in every way imaginable. He watches her, not me, as he shoves it in. I am a piece of meat, a blow-up doll. It's sloppy and about as intimate as picking up dog shit. He comes, pulls out, says matter-of-factly, I guess I needed that. Afterwards, we talk about attending a concert. He jokes that people will wonder why he brought his mother. Granted, he is six years younger than me, but with a gray beard and plenty of wrinkles of his own. His soft belly is crisscrossed with stretch marks, droops over his skinny jeans. His feet are gnarled, courtesy of the diabetes he neglects. I have not ever complained about these things. I have only ever loved this body of his, so trashed and broken, that more than once I have had to assist him walking to the toilet to help him out of bed, and sometimes up off the floor. And yet, in his eyes, he is a young, strong stud. Me, I am no longer his silver fox, just a hag who embarrasses him, an overcooked frog. Again I recoil, but the scorpion has already stung. I cry out in pain. He persists. Have you ever thought of dyeing your hair and wearing makeup to look younger? A week later he dumps me because he says, I have driven him away with my low self-esteem. Months later, I learned this truth. He'd been cheating. His other girlfriend, 14 years my junior, hair dyed, face made up, a fresher target for his abuse, moved from side project to shotgun seat, as I am too worn down to put up enough of a fight anymore, and it is the fight that makes him hard. Two therapists and a shit ton of Googling bring me a little cold comfort in the wake of his departure. 
not cold enough or comforting enough to save me from death by boiling, death by so many stings, but there are psychological theories to contemplate. I like this psychology stuff. I need the, I need the helicopter of these notions to fly in and pull me from the water. I'm dead already. My heart is destroyed. But if nothing else, I want to give it a proper burial. Apparently, Darth and I are nowhere near unique. The shrinks say we are the perfect storm of anxious attached and avoidant attached, neurotic programming set in motion when we were children. He, narcissist extremist, puts me down to push me away because he is terrified of love, and I, feeling abandoned, dash in crying for more. Avoidance love insulting their partner's bodies, a way to maintain control, to convince themselves there is some perfect other out there, and you are not that one. And the anxious, like me, we will do anything, anything, for a mere morsel of ever-dwindling attention. For months after the breakup, I cry most days. I cry with the grief of missing him, and I cry with the grief of knowing how wrong it is to miss him. I cry when I look in the mirror at my frog bones, count my ribs, look away in anguish. I dig out my granny panties, throw away the razor and the flimsy lingerie. I work to love my silver streaks again, the ones I used to appreciate without a second thought. I look at the wrinkles, the sags where the fat once filled me out and made me juicy and delicious. I hate him so much. The scorpion is long gone, but sometimes the phantom pain of past stings rises up. Still, I make myself get up, go into the world. I run into people who have not seen me in ages. They barely recognize me. I understand. I barely recognize myself. They take in this new me. The compliments come pouring in. I fight off wincing. Thank you, I say. And then I walk away. I confess, I wish I had more energy for sex, but right now my body just won't get it done. It happens. Rest. Rejuvenate. Yeah. Sometimes it's just too much to give of yourself to anybody else. So, you know, I would say practice alone for a little while. Try that out. See how that goes. I confess, I fried my laptop by spilling a glass of wine on it while in the midst of a threesome. The other two tried their best to dry it and save it. It was a futile naked scramble. (laughs) The laptop wasn't all that got wet that night. I confess, I fisted a guy's ass this week. It's fresh. This is a fresh, hot confession. <laughs> Steaming. All right. Steaming. I have small female hands, so I try to do two hands. But I guess we need to work up to that. 
Level one only. Got 1.5 inches in. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Lubrication, people. Always lube all more than you think you need. But not not to put pressure on the two hands. No. One hand is away. That's a very reasonable place to start. Yeah. One hand. One finger. I'm yeah. Yeah. But lube. Yeah. That it is an orifice that does not self-lubricate. It needs all of the assistance that it can get. Look what I did there. I confess, the first time I tried to peg a man, (laughs) I didn't warm... Oh, is this the same confession? Uh, The first time I tried to peg a man, I didn't warm lube him up enough, and he shot across my bed screaming (laughs) when I shoved it in like it belonged. Case in point. Um, always do your homework. <laughs> and don't rely on us, as we only do this once every three months. So, Google. <laughs> I confess, I know I'm a goddess. Now, I just need to find somebody who recognizes that. Yeah! I confess, it was hard to find compatible people to fuck at a swingers resort. There were so many Republicans! Those are your confessions, my people. Bedpost Confessions is recorded in front of a live audience at the North Door in Austin, Texas. To view our 2020 calendar or snag an I Confess t-shirt, tote, or journal, visit bedpostconfessions.com. Follow at Bedpost Confessions on Instagram and Facebook for more audience confessions and snapshots of the Bedpost Confessions performers and their stories. Link for Spike and all things Bedpost Confessions in the show notes. Bedpost Confessions is produced by myself, Miranda Wiley, and Sadie Smythe. Our podcast production team is Mariah Gossett, Mike Moody, and Permanent Record Studios. If you've been enjoying the show, we ask that you share it with a pal or maybe a lover. Or if you really want to show your appreciation, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, and keep confessing. <laughs>